The Old Testament scripture reading for this morning comes from Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. But before I begin reading, I just want to thank you all for uh, trying to sing these new songs as they are, uh, we're still getting used to it, um, but I appreciate your efforts. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day... I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. This ends the Old Testament scripture reading for this morning. Let us go to our God in prayer once more and ask his blessing upon it. Lord, we... Indeed, we ask that you would bless the hearing and the preaching of your word, that you would give uh, your uh, minister clarity of thought and of uh, speech, and indeed that your will, your ordained, uh, your word would be made known to your people, that you would penetrate into our hearts Help us to put off the old man and put on the new through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this uh, morning, I'll confess, I didn't uh, expect us to be looking at this particular text again this morning. Uh, you know, we've been looking at the Passover account for almost two chapters. It's been preached on, if you count chapter 11, three times already, not including this morning. And we're still not close to being out of chapter 12 yet. We're probably going to have at least two more sermons from this particular text. Uh, But it is completely appropriate to slow down through certain portions of Scripture. There are certain passages of Scripture that are simply put uh, weightier than others. They carry a great deal of substance with them. And if you're going to understand its full weight and importance for you as God's people, you have to take the time to slow down 
and look at it from the different angles, uh, you know, pulling on it out at the various threads of the tapestry, if you will, uh, that hold the whole picture together so that you can see it from all its angles. And what we're doing this morning is sort of looking at a, a, a multifaceted diamond in hand, you know, putting on your jeweler's lens, your inspector's glass, and we look at it closely. You're looking at it from the various angles and sides, beholding its beauty and luster up close. And this morning, we're probably going to notice its sharpness as well. well Exodus 12 is one of these passages that we must take our time through because its themes unfold all throughout the Bible. Uh, we'll see echoes of the feast of Passover all throughout the New Testament. We see echoes of them most especially in the crucifixion of Christ and in the Lord's Supper. And the feast of unleavened bread will be echoed elsewhere in the Bible as well. Probably the most mo notable passage being 1 Corinthians 5 and that uh, in New Testament passage that we read this morning, although I think it will be clear by the end of this morning that its meaning is multifold or, or seen in elsewhere throughout the scriptures. And so the question as we look at our text this morning is not so much why are we here again, uh, even though your pastor still wonders sometimes, uh, but rather what should we be seeing in the Feast of Unleavened Bread? What is it that we are here to behold? You know, uh, uh, why give this time to this particular feast. And it's interesting that the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that is, you find it between verses 14 and 20 here, it falls right on the heels of the Passover feast. And I know, uh, as I said, we read this uh, text to us, and it sounds like it is all one event. If you read chapter 12 altogether, the Passover just bleeds right into this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and to be sure, I mean, when Israel is brought into the land of Canaan, even as they are wandering throughout the wilderness, these two feasts are celebrated together. Very closely uh, are they linked. They're knit almost together. The one falls right on the heels of the other. It's still celebrated that way today. When the Feast of Passover ends, the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. And as the Passover reminds us, of what God has done for us, how he has delivered us from the bondage of sin, how he has sent his only son, Christ Jesus, as a substitute to stand in our place. And as he stands condemned to death so that we might be shielded from the angel of death ourselves, as the Passover reminds us of how our Christian journey begins. The Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds us of how it is to continue how it continues to unfold, or as one student of the Bible puts it, the Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds us what God wants us to do once we've been saved, and that is to live a sanctified life, becoming more and more free from sin. So what, then, does the Feast of Unleavened Bread point us to? It points us to how we have been freed from something. And second, it points us to how we have been freed to something. And these points this morning, they're not going to be uh, proportionate. We're certainly going to spend a significantly greater amount of time on the latter point. So when I finish up the first point shortly, don't get all that excited. Uh, I'll make up for it with the second one. Uh, but the first 
but first, the Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds us that we have been freed from something. Freed from something. What does that mean that we have been freed from something? Well, just like the Passover, this points beyond itself. This feast points beyond itself to a greater reality. And the Passover points to the greater reality of a substitute who must die for sin, one who would cover over his people in order that they might live under the shadow of protection from their God who hovers over them like a mother bird, one who will watch over them even as they go through this life and no enemies of God can harm them. And just as the uh, Passover reminds us of the death of the Lamb of God and his sacrifice on behalf of his people, the Feast of Unleavened Bread points to a specific reality as well. It points to something in the future to come. Notice in verse 17, which seems to be the centerpiece of these verses, uh, there's sort of this uh, chiastic structure, I believe, that uh, points it out as the uh, main center to this particular text, that it is the... Uh, um, focal point that answers the question, why? Why do we do this particular thing? Why celebrate this feast of unleavened bread? And it says to us, God says, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. Why? Because on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. On this day, I brought the whole nation of the people of God out of Egypt. I brought the assembly of the people out from bondage. I brought my, and that word host, it, it means armies. I brought my armies out from the dwelling in that land. Well, how does unleavened bread remind us of this? How does this particular picture of unleavened bread show forth this reality? Well, when God execute his, uh, executes his judgment upon Egypt, they will send you out of the land so fast that you won't even have time for the bread to rise. You'll have to carry it out still in its kneading bowl, wrapped in cloth and still unfinished. Yeast not yet added or given the time to rise. That's how fast you are going to have to fly out from this land. Once the command to send you out of the land comes, you're going to eat Passover and you're going to do it with your traveling clothes on and fly from this place because I set my hand to free you from bondage. You will not remain in this place for long. So clearly, on the one hand, the unleavened bread and the feast here pictures the pilgrimage itself. It reminds us how God's people will be called forth to fly from the land that was not their own as they head for a homeland that God has called them to. There's this picture of pilgrimage, of moving from one place into the other, even as you would see in the New Testament, how we are not in our homeland even now, but that we are being called into a heavenly kingdom and a heavenly land. Egypt is not Israel's final home. And as they depart, the unleavened bread stands a reminder of that day that this land this place, this people, it is their, not their home, but I am bound for the promised land. And so we have a picture of being freed from the bondage of sin and slavery, a picture of being freed, if you will, from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of our God, to his homeland. But what exactly 
have we been freed to? What is it that the people of God have been freed into? It's never just one half of the equation. There's always two sides. Uh, as a friend of mine pointed out recently, there's always two sides to any slice of bread. Uh, as you are freed from something, and in this case, the people of God have been freed from slavery and sin, what is it that they are being freed into? What is this pilgrimage that they are leaving lead to? What is their destination? What is their final end? As they walk on this pilgrimage, what becomes clear in this text is that they have been freed to something as well. They have been freed to something as well. You know, if you ever have the distinct pleasure of being locked away in prison, which I am not recommending, by the way, when something has been taken from you, namely your freedom from interacting with the, the world on your own terms and in your own ways, you know, it's obvious once you walk out of those prison doors what you've just received. You know, you're not just being freed from the prison system, you're being freed into the world, everything that has just been handed to you, you've been given the freedom to make your own choices again, what to eat, when to eat, where to eat, what to, where to live, what kind of job you'll have from now on. In other words, you aren't just being freed out of something, but you're being freed into something as well. Well, what do we see here with the people of God? People of God haven't just been freed from bondage and the bondage of sin, but they have been freed to do what? What is the whole reason God has called his people out into the desert in the first place? To worship him. To have their whole lives be oriented to the living and true God rightly in spirit and in truth. You'll recall back in Exodus 3 when Moses is debating with God. God says, look, I'm calling my people out of this land of Egypt so that they can go out into the desert and sacrifice to me there. That's the first thing you're going to do when you're freed from this bondage because the rest of your life now will be oriented in this new freedom towards worshiping me. You have been, uh, uh, you have been found by me and you will uh, be reoriented in the rest of your lives by worshiping me. And isn't that what God has called us for, people of God? When Christ came and lived a perfect life in our place, when he satisfied the demands of the law that we could not keep, and when he died on the cross for our sake, paying the penalty for our sin, what comes after for the people of God? Once Christ has risen again from the dead and he tells us in the gospel that we have been raised together with him, then the entirety of our lives now are reoriented towards that final day, towards that final destination where we will worship him in spirit and in truth without any hindrance from this world that so easily entangles us with sins that we are to worship that creator and redeemer rather than the creature. Worship will become the centerpiece of our lives. There is a reason that the day that we worship him has been moved from the last day to the first and we worship him on the first day of the week on Sunday because we rest in him and he makes all things new to us. And now in our labors from this first day of the week, we go out from the second day on to the very last. Our labors are done in joy in response to what he has done. 
It is our reasonable service to live our lives in light of what he has done. It is our reasonable worship or liturgy, if you will, from uh, uh, Romans chapter 12. Not just to be done on the Sabbath day, but throughout the rest of the week, we worship God rightly. How? How do we worship our God rightly? First of all, first and foremost, here as we are gathered to worship him specifically, but as we go out into the world by living a life of obedience to him. For we have been freed from sin to walk in accordance to the manner to which he has called us, to live lives set apart in holiness, to walk according to the calling by which we have been called, according to Ephesians 4, to flee from sin and unrighteousness, to seek after godliness, or in the language of Exodus 12, to cleanse out the old leaven and to live in the new. To cleanse out the old leaven and live in the new. Notice verse 15. Verse 15 says this, Seven days you will eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven out from your house. And if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day to the seventh, that person is to be cut off from the people of God. And again, we see the same imagery reflected in verse 19. Excuse me. You have the same thing repeated and intensified some. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your house, is not to have any existence there. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person is to be cut off from the congregation of Israel. They are to be separated out from them. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all of your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Now, why would God command this? Is there some reason he wants their diet to change for just one week out of the year? You know, is this just good uh, cleansing diet of some kind? Why does God command them to do this, to cleanse the leaven out of their home and to uh, uh, um, restrain eating of it so much so that they will be cut off from the covenant community for the rest of their lives if they partake of leavened bread? I mean, what is so important about leaven that God would have his people cut it out of their diets with a real threat hanging over their heads that if they don't, they risk being separated from the assembly of the righteous and the godly, literally thrown out of the church forever. What is the big deal about leaven? Just as unleavened bread pictures pilgrimage, leaven in bread in the scriptures often picks pictures corruption. Not always. There are a few times the leavened bread will picture full joy and peace, like when it's offered in the peace offering to God. It is a picture of what God's provision for his people, and it reminds about the fullness of joys that is ours because God has provided for them, which is why it's okay. Uh, Try not to get sidetracked here, but this is why it's okay for us to use unleavened bread in the Lord's Supper, because what it pictures is or excuse me, leavened bread in the supper, supper, because what it pictures is the fullness of joy, a reason to rejoice, and so on. Many times, leaven is a picture of corruption. Leaven, by the way, I know I've been using that term all throughout. It literally just means yeast, okay? It is what you use to cause fermentation. It's what causes batter and dough to rise, but because it has this quality of 
possibly compromising something that is good in and of itself. It's been understood as a picture of sin and corruption. In fact, uh, in many of the writings of the rabbis or the teachers of the holy book, uh, Levin talks about evil and human corruption. Regularly, regularly, they use leaven to describe corruption within a human person, something that we see happening in the New Testament too as you move into it. Luke chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus tells his disciples, beware of the leaven or the yeast or the corruption of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. If you've been following Jesus' speech, if you move through chapter uh, 11, Jesus has been accusing the Pharisees and the lawyers of all sorts of sins that are going on in their lives and caring about uh, uh, what is on the outside and not what is on the inside, about those who tithe uh, uh, but, not, uh, uh, but yet neglect to give justice or love to God properly. They love being greeted in the public and receiving the best seats in the house. And Jesus says, you're corrupt in hypocrisy. The leaven of corruption has worked into you. And again, Jesus uses this language of leaven in Matthew 16, and it's the same idea. It's the same picture. Leaven is seen as this corruption that is working its way through the whole lump of dough. And so Israel here is called to sweep out the old leaven from their house, literally to take a broom when they entered into the land and to make sure that it has all been taken out, even any wild yeast that might have come in through the doors and the windows. They are to sweep the house clean of any possible corruption that may come. They are to take it from their house and to not consume it for seven days. They are to be separated away from it because of the Passover lamb and its blood that has been shed for them and covers over them. People of God, do you see the picture that God is displaying for you, what he is putting up for us to behold as we look back on this feast? Just as Israel is to sweep out the leaven from their homes, what we see in picture form, we, as God's people, are called to sweep out the sin from our lives. You know, surely Israel knows what is being pictured in this sweeping out of the leaven. It's not just a ritual that they do without understanding it, because it's reflected throughout the rabbis' teachings, the teachers of the law, that they refer to this leaven as sin regularly and repeatedly. They understand what is being pictured in this uh, a feast of unleavened bread. They get it. And the calling that is put upon them as well. Once the Passover lamb is sacrificed for us, we are to sweep out the old leaven, as Paul says, of malice and evil. We are to remove it from ourselves. We are to cut off sin from our lives, lest we, like Israel, be cut off from communion with God. You'll notice Israel is told twice, don't partake of this leaven or you will be cut off from God's people. You will be separated from the promises of God. They will no longer be for you if you don't take care when you hear this. I mean, this is really serious stuff for Israel. If you don't cut out the sins from your life, I'm going to cut you out from my presence. They would be cut out from the community of the saints, all that they have ever known, all that they have ever belonged to, if they tolerate 
any leaven in their midst. And it is heightened for us, people of God, as you come to the New Testament. We see this in 1 Corinthians 5, that passage we read this morning, don't we? I mean, Paul is talking about this man who is living with his mother-in-law in open sin. Paul is talking about and dealing with real sin in the church because it exists, doesn't it? I mean, sin exists in the lives of the people of God. And Paul warns the church saying, you know, if you tolerate a little leaven, just a little, it won't do at all because leaven, even a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. It will spread its corrupting influences. Evil will spread. And you are, if you are willing to tolerate this kind of sin in your midst, this kind of sin where a man is living with his mother in law, What other sins are you harboring and tolerating? What is indicative of the rest of the lump if this is just a little portion of it? And Scripture says, purge it out. Remove it from you. Walk in purity and in holiness. Put off the old leaven. Or in other words, put off the old man who is waging war against the new man. Purge it out. Why? Because you are holy. You have been set apart. You have been God's called out people. And he has covered you with the blood of the Lamb of God. God has been a sacrifice for you. And you are precious to him. Set apart to worship him this day. With the whole of your being. Not just parts. With the whole of it. With every day of your life. And it is your joy to love him, to walk in obedience to him. Therefore, how can you tolerate this sin in your own heart and in the congregation? Charles Hodge says, as Christ died to redeem us from all iniquity, it is not only contrary to the designs of his death, but a proof that we are not interested in its benefits if we live in sin. It's not only contradictory to what Jesus is seeking to accomplish. He frees you from sin in order that you might worship him, in order that you might be separated unto him, in order that you may be made holy and enter into his presence. And yet if we leave that sin in order to be freed into new sin and to indulge the pleasures of our lives, Charles Hodge is saying, It's only proof that we are not interested in Christ and his benefits at all. If we dwell in sin, living in sin, and that idea of living in sin especially, it's different from falling into sin from time to time. It is tolerating it in your life. It is being addicted to something and not seeking repentance. It is is not repeatedly falling into a sin and repenting, but it is living in un repentance of something, growing tolerance to a sin that we hold dear to us. And people of God, we all, and there is no exception to this, we all like to hold our sins close to our chest and hope that no one knows about them. We have our secret sins that we indulge in and they are precious to us. It's like Gollum in the Lord of the Rings as he strokes the ring, calling it his precious. We love it. We stroke it. We hold it. We pretend that we have mastery over it when in fact it is the reverse. It will hold mastery over us and we serve it like it is our king 
and will do something good for us in the long run. And God says, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. You can't contain the sin. You can't file it away. You can't box it up and put it over here on this shelf. You can't keep its corrupting influences from spreading throughout the whole of you. You can't keep one part of your life uh, under it, and it will end up consuming you. And as you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it will consume Christ's church if you do not stand hard against it. In the same way, it literally consumes Golem in the fires of Mount Doom. Ultimately, he dives after the ring because his precious is so precious, he is willing to go through the fires of hell to save it. We must take sin seriously, both in our lives and in the church, and even as Paul does, saying, cast out the brother from you who is living in open immorality. And people of God, I know this sermon is coming across harsh. It must, because we are called not to tolerate even a little, to put off the old man completely with its lusts and desires that would drive us away from the throne room of grace. People of God, we are called to flee from sin. We're called to turn hard against it, to take hard stances against it in our own lives and in our in the church, or it will slowly change you. It will corrupt you to the point where you may even find yourself being cut off from the people of God. There's a scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that I find particularly poignant, pointed. When Lucy's brother Edmund, he first steps through the wardrobe, he encounters the white witch. And as he chats with her, you know, as he speaks with her, she she seems terrifying until she gives him something to drink and eat, at which point suddenly she becomes more lovely to him. And she offers him this Turkish delight. And it tells us the more he ate it, the more he wanted, and the more he indulged it, the more it sought mastery over him. And as the queen knew, though Edmund did not, that anyone who tasted this Turkish delight would want more and more and more of it. And if allowed to go on eating it, it would kill, they would kill themselves, devouring this. And Edmund eventually will run to her with open arms to taste just once more this sin that so easily entangles. And sure enough, Edmund ends up in chains to the white witch, enslaved to the very thing that would kill him if Aslan would allow it. And that is the good news for us people of God, is that God does not leave us to our sinfulness. He does not leave us to run hard after the things that we would desire, but much like Aslan would go to the stone table and die so that Edmund could be free of it. And it would then become Edmund's joy to serve Aslan, to fight in his army, even turning the tide of the war at the end of the book, all because Aslan died for him. It's the same picture as us, as we understand Christ dying for us. Indeed, Christ has satisfied the law of God. He has slayed sin once and for all in his death and in his rising again. He has killed it in you. He has freed you from it. Death, or excuse me, sin has no final mastery over you. 
You see, people of God, we are called to walk in holiness as he is holy. We are to abandon all sin because it is not fitting for the people of God to entertain it at all, even for a little adult indulgence here and there. For ultimately, it would seek your life. It will kill you. Even as Romans tells us, the wages of sin is death. But Christ died. And he died for the ungodly. He died for sinners such as you and I because he knew that we would be enticed by our sin repeatedly again and again, that we like sheep would wander our own way, that we would each go our own stray, and that we would long for the bondage, for the leeks and onions of Egypt. And yet he would die for sinners so we would no longer be slaves to sin. And it indeed no longer holds mastery over us, even as Pharaoh is no longer the king of Israel. He holds no sway over them in the same way death and sin Hold no mastery over you, people of God. It does not reign over you. Therefore, the text calls us to seek or stop seeking to indulge the flesh. No longer serve that old master. No longer serve that master who is, uh, uh, only seeks your destruction, but rather to serve with joy and thanksgiving the God who loved you and who loved you so much that he demonstrated it by dying for you by giving his only begotten son for you. So how then do we go forward, people of God, as the called out church? People of God, take sin seriously. In your life and in the church, we must not make light of it. For if we don't, it will fester and grow. It will become something cancerous. And just as cancer must be cut out, so must we cut out sin in our lives, or it will kill, for it seeks only to destroy. It seeks to master you. But remember, even as we remember, even as we fail regularly, even as we fall into sins repeatedly, remember what First John reminds us. If anyone does sin, speaking to the church, he knows what's going to happen. He knows where we are. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And in telling us this and reminding us this, he is calling the people saying, turn in repentance and faith repeatedly. Turn away from your sins that so easily entangle and repent and remember and believe the promises of God that are given for you in Christ Jesus. Continue this regular cycle that is your Christian service and may that story that is told over you that you are a redeemed child of God, that you belong to him, that you belong to a country that is not of this world. May that story that is spoken over you be repeated over you enough that you long to flee from the old man and the flesh and the devil and put on the new man. For that story that Christ has given is spoken over you and it is made new forever and ever in him. People of God, may we flee. May we flee the lust that we love. The sin that we, we only return to sin because we love it. As a dog returns to his vomit, we return to it because we love it. But may we flee from it, turning to the God who truly loves you as he holds out life 
and seek constant repentance and belief, returning to these things anew. For Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, may we keep the feast till he comes again. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this was a hard word to hear from you. And yet we do thank you. We thank you that you have come as our Passover lamb, that you sent forth Christ Jesus as your only begotten son to deliver us from our sin and righteousness, to free us from the bondage of the old man. But Father, we pray that you would help us, help us to walk according to the calling by which we have been called, for we are weak and feeble. We so easily turn astray and wander away from your good ways. We so easily say, oh, but this looks so much better than walking in obedience to you. Father, we ask that you would renew our hearts, renew our minds in Christ Jesus. Remind us of the precious promises that are ours through faith. Indeed, that there is an inheritance that awaits for the people of God. Remind us of these things that we might with joy and thanksgiving throw off the sins that so easily entangle and run the race that is set before us. Father, we pray for your church. We pray for her people that you would cause them to walk in holiness and be holy for you are holy. And indeed to cast off the sins that so easily entangle that you would remind us of the day and persevere us, cause us to complete the race because you are the one who has begun to work in us through Christ. And if you have begun the work, you will bring it to completion. Therefore, we ask that you would harden hard hearts and soften us. Help us or change our resolve to be not tolerant of sin, but to turn and flee from it, even as Joseph flees from Potiphar's wife. Oh God, we pray these things. Help us, we pray, to see Christ high and lifted up on our behalf. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.